morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're starting a brand new series and a new reading plan. We had a lot of fun uh, back in the fall reading through uh, all the epistles together. And so we wanted to follow that up with um, uh, another reading plan to read together as a church for the spring. And we thought, you know, uh, we, we'd gone through the Advent season. We used the book of Matthew there in Matthew chapter 1 and, and uh, um, for uh, our focus in the Christmas season. And we thought, well, why not just keep that, that same ball rolling as we move in through the spring? Because it's going to take us right up to Easter. And um, with that process in mind, all, all we need to do to stay together, if you want to read through Matthew with us, is read two chapters a week. So uh, you'll start tomorrow and read Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2. And um, we'll be talking about the book of Matthew in our Sunday morning sermons. We'll be doing it on Sunday night uh, and as well as the other uh, um, groups that will be starting in February. So um, I'm just really looking forward to this. Uh, speaking of tonight, by the way, I forgot to mention that tonight is our first prayer night of the year. You know, we're doing worship and prayer the first Sunday night of the month. And tonight, 6 o'clock, right here in this room, if anybody's invited to come, um, we just have a real sweet time of, of prayer together from 6 to 7 p.m. And uh, we just want to invite you to come and be a part of that as we pray in the new year and get ready for 2020. And, and so I know that you're invited to that. So back to Matthew. Um, we're going to read together Matthew chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 to 12. It's the story of the wise men. and uh, But I want to draw some application from that. Typically in the calendar of the church, we would call this like epiphany or the celebration of the wise men coming. Um, it's, uh, you know, in our, our nativity sets, if you've got a nativity set, you know, you've got the 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 shepherds and the angel and the, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph and and the little drummer boy, because, you know, he's in the gospel somewhere. I'm not sure where, but we'll find him there. Um, but then you've got, and then you usually have the three, the, you've got three wise men on their camels, right? Well, we don't know that there are three. We'll talk about that in a minute. And we also know that they didn't come to the to the uh, actual nativity, the actual birthplace of Jesus. They probably came a few weeks or months later. Um, but... Uh, uh, so I, forgive me, if, if I come to your house next Christmas and the wise men are there in your nativity set, I'm just going to knock them over and say, that's not right. You're in biblical error there. No, no, I certainly wouldn't do that. You would not judge. I hope you would never judge the spirituality of our house by our nativity set, because inevitably by the end of Christmas, there would be the, you know, the, the everybody involved, everybody who's supposed to be there. And then Spider-Man would be hanging down from the top, and Batman would be kneeling at the side of the of the manger. So, um, uh, so please don't judge my my nativity set. Hey, um, uh, we're reading from Matthew chapter two, and let me uh, let me start here in verse one, Matthew two. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, uh, that word that word means wise. Uh, Magi were um, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the in the east and have come to worship him. 
King Herod heard this, and he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, this is quoting from Micah chapter 5, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now that was not Herod's intention, but that was at least the ruse he used to... uh, uh, Convince the wise men. Now, verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Father, speak to us this morning. Um, We just ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide and that we would uh, understand the things that you have for us here today simply because they they mean something in our lives and and the way that we're supposed to live. And and so help us to to glean those things. And and I just pray that you'd be actively involved in this study here this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, just a few interesting facts from the book of Matthew, since we're going to be studying Matthew over the next four months. Um, the, the name Matthew means gift of the Lord. And uh, Matthew is the son of a man named Alphaeus. We read uh, of Matthew in, in the other Gospels. We get a little bit more information about Matthew. Uh, we recognize that this book was probably written about 30 years after Jesus' life, and so somewhere between 58 and 68 A.D., but about 30 years after, 35 years after Jesus had gone back to heaven. Um, It is a a book written by a Jew, Matthew was a Jew, to his Jewish countrymen, specifically targeting this book to Jews, and it was written about a Jew, uh, the Lord Jesus, who was their long-awaited Messiah. Matthew specifically wrote his gospel for Jews. His purpose, and as we're going to see in just a minute, Matthew's purpose was for his countrymen, other Jews, to believe that Jesus was their promised Messiah. And everything he did in his writing was to that aim. And so now, Mark, if you look at the four Gospels, Matthew is a timeline gospel. We call it a synoptic or a timeline gospel. Um, Mark was written more as a Reader's Digest synopsis of Jesus' life. And, and, he, and Mark got most of his information as an eyewitness account from the Apostle Peter. So Mark was Peter's assistant, and, and he wrote what Peter saw. And so Mark is a more uh, kind of an overall overview of the life of Jesus. Luke was written by a Gentile to us Gentiles. Oftentimes in the Gospel of Luke, Luke will stop and take time to explain to us why they're doing whatever they're doing based on a Jewish festival or custom, because he wants us as Gentiles to understand what's going on. And so those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them synoptic or timeline Gospels. 
And then we have John. John's gospel was not written as a timeline gospel. John really just picked, he chose different sort of topics from the uh, life of Jesus to emphasize various things. And so uh, his was not a like beginning to end gospel. It was just more of a story after story of various events of Jesus' life. And so those are the focus of the four gospels. But Matthew is very much a Jewish-centered gospel. Matthew uses quotes from the Old Testament to establish that that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. More than 130 times, Matthew uses quotations and allusions from the Old Testament that show that Jesus fulfills all the qualifications to be the Jewish Messiah. Matthew often used the phrase, that which was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. That phrase does not appear anywhere in Mark, Luke, or John. Only in Matthew's gospel. And also the phrase son of David, which refers to the Davidic line, occurs nine times in Matthew's gospel, but only six times collectively in Mark, Luke, and John. And so again, Matthew is hammering this point. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our Messiah. Matthew shows his Jewish readers that Jesus is the culmination of the promises delivered over a thousand-year period, meaning the Old Testament, that Jesus is the culmination of all those prophecies. And Matthew shows that God's redemptive plan is alive and well after 400 years of prophetic silence. If you look at the way the Bible is constructed, the Old Testament goes all the way up through the prophets, and the last writer is a guy named Malachi or as I, my prof used to call him, Malachi, the Italian prophet. But no, his name is Malachi. And Malachi, when he finished writing, closed the Old Testament was done, and then there was 400 years, 400 years of silence from heaven. And then Matthew picks it up. And Matthew shows us that, that, that even though heaven was silent for 400 years, God had not forgotten his redemptive plan for man and that this plan would continue to march forward. We know that Matthew was a passionate soul winner. We see in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, that Matthew gives a large reception in his house so that his associates, fellow tax collectors, could meet Jesus. The, the phrase kingdom of heaven appears 55 times in Matthew's gospel. And we know that Matthew was a tax collector who lived in Capernaum um, and w- when Jesus called him to, to follow him. As a tax collector, what that meant was that he was a Jew who actually subcontracted his employ from the Romans. And the Romans put really heavy taxes on the Jews And they hired Jewish tax collectors to gather those taxes. And not only would they gather the taxes, but they would also skim off the top of those taxes. So the tax collectors were, if you were a tax collector in Israel, you were a despised individual. So Matthew was not a a well-liked man by the the. The, the, his uh, his neighbors and the fact that he lived in Capernaum actually made him a physical neighbor of the Lord Jesus. We know that the Lord Jesus spent the early days of his life down near Jerusalem. And then when his ministry started after his temptation and baptism, he moved up north and Jesus took up residence in a town called Capernaum there along the, the, the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee. And Matthew also lived in Capernaum, so it's quite possible that they knew each other from their hometowns. 
There's a very distinct turning point in the book of Matthew. And we'll look at this more significantly when we get there. But I want to show you this morning uh, the significance of this because this is really going to begin to show us a little bit more about why Jesus did what he did in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, Jen's going to put this on the screen for us. In Matthew 12, Jesus is, is near his hometown, and he's doing some work. Uh, he's healing people. He's casting out demons. And then there are religious leaders and Pharisees who have come around to watch what he's doing. And here was their response. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees, these are the religious ruling class, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul or, or Satan, it is only by Satan, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So they literally, at that point, they make a definitive statement that Jesus only does this work through the power of Satan. Jesus, knowing full well their intention, from this point forward, there's a, there's a clear line of demarcation, both in Matthew's gospel and the ministry of Jesus. And now he starts using many more parables. He starts taking his work primarily to his 12 disciples, preparing them for the ministry and for the, 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 the teaching that he's giving, the freedom that he's giving, the redemptive plan that he's giving. And then he also um, uh, talks much more about his crucifixion and death. So after Matthew 12, we're going to see a lot more parables. We're going to see a lot more um, Jesus focusing on his disciples, Jesus focusing on the, the ministry of multiplication and redemption and turning his back more on those who have rejected him and calling him satanic. And then finally, the book of Matthew is placed first in the canon of the New Testament by the early church because of the natural bridge it creates between the Old and New Testaments. The book of Matthew is such a, such a, a wonderful um, uh, uh, transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And because Matthew uses so many Old Testament allusions... When the early church fathers were putting together the order of the books in the New Testament, they decided Matthew should be first because it clearly gives us the best transition coming out of the old and going into the new. Okay, so what about this study? And what are some things that that what we really hope uh, to accomplish here? I was meeting with Spence and Mike uh, this last week because they're the ones who put the reading plans together and oversee the small groups and and, and are really emphasizing more and more of, of, of this model. And as, as the three of us talked, you know, okay, what are some of the things that we really want to accomplish here? Well, the first thing is obviously that we as a church read a complete book of the Bible together. Now, that's going to be an accomplishment. You know, I heard this stat this week, and, and it really kind of broke my heart. We talk about, in the evangelical church today, we talk about the power of the written Word of God. And how significant that word is. And, and the change it brings to our lives. Do you know that only uh, Lifeway, the, the, the uh, Christian curriculum publishers, did a study over the last few years. And their conclusion was this. Only 31% of evangelical church-going Christians read the Bible regularly. Three in ten. Three in ten people. Regular church-going Christians read the Bible regularly. Seven in ten do not. 
And so what that means is we say that we believe it has life-giving challenge and, and, and information for our lives and all the stuff that we need, but we're really not reading it. And so one of the things that we're excited about is that if you follow this plan with us, at least by, by Easter, you'll, we'll be able to say together, <laughs> we completed a book of the Bible. And I think that's pretty cool. Number two is that there's a deeper understanding of the life and the events of Jesus himself. He is our king. He's our Messiah. He's our redeemer. He is what it says in Hebrews 12, the pioneer, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so we need to know his life. We need to know his events. We need to know the things that happened to Jesus. And we'll be able to see that in a collective way from beginning to end. It won't just be happen a stance. It won't just be, you know, a, a sort of shotgunned approach looking at the life of Jesus. No, we'll be able to see the timeline and how these things happen. And the third thing is that living with Jesus leads us to uncomfortable places like multiplication. As we get to Matthew chapter 28, we're going to see the commission that Jesus leaves all of us that we're to go into all the world preaching the gospel, teaching the things that Jesus taught, that that's our responsibility. And if we follow the life of Jesus and we begin to embrace the life of Jesus, it's going to lead us to some uncomfortable places. Now, we know that places, places of discomfort are places where we grow. They're places that challenge us. Um, you know, we are talking about the, the one word for the church. Brian led us to the word story last year, and he'll, he'll help us kind of shape that word for the church this year. And as you all choose your one word of focus for the year, and, and, and we'll choose a one word for the church. And, but uh, different people have given me different suggestions, and one of those suggestions is the word uncomfortable. Maybe we should choose that word uncomfortable. And when we choose the word uncomfortable, it, it, it leads us to, I mean, how many of you, this is going to sound terrible. You, a lot of y'all have made New Year's resolutions. And as you've done so, as you look at that list of resolutions, how many of them you put on the list because they're easy? This year I resolved to eat more cake. I am well on my way. This year, I resolved to watch more television. Those sound like good resolutions, right? They sound pretty easy. They sound very easy. Those aren't resolutions. Things that we do to help us grow are things that make us uncomfortable. I've got to get myself back on that exercise bike. Got to start eating the right the right way. I've got to got to start going back to the gym, or I've got to get my finances in order. Or I've got to do this or that, and all of these are uncomfortable things, but they lead us to healthy places. And obviously, we're going to spend this year with Jesus. He's going to lead us to some uncomfortable places, and that's not all bad. We we need those places of discomfort to to help us grow. And as a church to help us multiply. Well, what about this story itself? I just want to glean a, a, a few thoughts. I've got four specific things. And we'll, we'll go through this quickly. But as, as I read this, beginning of the reading plan and kind of getting ahead a little bit, there were a couple of things that jumped out at me in this story, The Visit of the Magi, that I wanted to share with you this morning. And the first one comes from, from, from verse 3, The Visit of the Magi. There in verse 3 it says that when King Herod... King Herod heard that this was, uh, excuse me, let me start over. When King Herod heard this, meaning that these magi were in town, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, why was Herod disturbed by the visit of these guys? 
They're coming to find the king of the Jews. Sounds like a pretty exciting event. So why was Herod disturbed? Because Herod, Herod was always fearful when his authority was challenged. Herod was a ruthless, evil, um, vile politician. Now, he was, he was wise in that. He was cunning in that he knew how to keep the, the Jews who he was considered. Oh, sorry about that. He was considered, uh, wow, that could wake. When you start to nod off, boy, there, I'm going right there, right there. Uh-oh, Frank's getting sleepy. Wake up, Frank. Wake up, Frank. <laughs> I was thinking, do we have anybody named Frank? Is there anybody here named Frank? Um, Herod would do anything to hang on to his power. Herod's what we call, Herod by, by heritage is called an Edomian meaning that he's from the line of Esau. You remember with the, the Jewish line lineage, Father Abraham, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the line of promise, the, the line of David, the line of kingship, the line of Israel. All of that came through Jacob. Herod was an Edomian, meaning that he came from the line of Esau. And there was always friction between Jacob and Esau, there was always friction between the Israelites and the, the Edomites, the, the Edomians. And uh, even today, you can, trace, you can trace all of that, the animosity in the Middle East between uh, uh, Palestine and Israel, Islam and Israel, all those kind of things. It all goes back to Jacob and Esau. And so uh, Herod was an Edomian. He was from the line of Esau, and he wanted to be ruler and authority and king over the Jews. And he would do anything to hang on to that power. By the way, uh, Herod was married nine times. Why? Because he kept killing his wives. And when his wife would become, um, she and her, her siblings or she and her children, Herod's children would, would start to show some desires or designs for the throne, he would have the wife and the children killed. He had in-laws killed. Uh, even Caesar Augustus said it was safer to be the sow than the son of Herod. Caesar, who was the Roman emperor who placed Herod in his position, even Caesar recognized what an evil man Herod was. That was just the nature of Herod. And now his authority is being questioned, and he's got uh, himself and all of Jerusalem in an anxious uproar. You want to, you, one of the things that this says to me, though, you want to notice one thing about Herod. If you look at the context, or the structure of this, this Greek sentence, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Jerusalem disturbed? These guys were coming to, to, to point them to the Messiah. Why were they disturbed? Because Herod was disturbed. And when Herod was disturbed, everybody's disturbed. You know what this says to me? If you're the leader of of a home, if you're a parent, and you're a parent who lives with anxiety and frustration and animosity and anger, your entire home will be affected by it. But if you're a parent of peace and a parent of love and a parent of joy, then your entire home will be affected by it. If you're a leader in a church 
And as the leader of that church, if you're a, a pastor or an elder or uh, uh, some a leader of a church, and, and yet as that leader, you're a person of, of control and, and, and frustration and worry and anxiety and doubt, then that entire organization will be an organization of frustration and anger and worry and doubt. But if you're a person of peace and a person of faith, everyone that follows you will be affected by that faith, that peace, and that, that strength that you exemplify as a leader. And so this, this really says to me, if I want to have a home of peace, then I've got to be a parent of peace. If I want to have a marriage of peace, then I've got to be a spouse of peace. If I want to have a, an office of peace, then I have to be a, an employer of peace. All of these things that, again, it, it started with Herod, flowed right into the city, and it just shows us the power of, uh, uh, of the, 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 uh, the inner strength or the inner anxiety of the, of the one in charge. The second thing here that, that I wanted to point us to was the fact that Herod, when, when he wanted his questions answered, he knew who to ask. He went to the, the priests. He went to the Levites, the scribes, the people who understood the word of God. They understood it, but they didn't obey it. Look at here in verses 5 and 6. He goes to... Herod wants to know where these magi are going to seek this this baby. And it says here in verse 5, In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. This is the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem is six and a half miles from the temple. Don't you think if these guys are mindful of the Old Testament word of God and they are looking for the Messiah, anxiously awaiting the king of the Jews, and then one comes along that clearly others are looking for, don't you think they would at least go and check it out? It's not a very far ride or walk or whatever to go see all the fuss around this baby. And yet these guys who knew the word of God better than anyone else, they could tell the king exactly where the child would, was supposed to be born. And yet they didn't lift a finger when it came to following him. It is not enough simply to read the word. Our faith is dependent on obedience. Religiosity, what everybody else sees, all the, you know, all of the uh, accolades that come from looking super spiritual. You can do all that and yet never obey the simple word of God. And that's what they did. Our faith, if it's going to be strong... Our faith doesn't come from simply reading the word, as it says in the book of James. We've got to do what it says. It comes through obedience. It comes through application. It comes from embracing the things of God. Well, these religious guys chose not to do that. The third thing here, and I think this is really cool. 
When you look at the gifts that these, these magi, these wise men brought, it really points once again to the focus of Matthew's book. It says there in verse 11, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. First, they worshipped. They bent their knee to the Savior. And then the gifts they brought really, once again, uh, emphasized the role that this child would play. Gold. Gold is the coinage and the minerals of the king, of the kingly. And so the fact that they were presenting him with gold was a, just a symbol of his kingship, his royalty. Frankincense. Frankincense was the incense of the temple, the incense of the divine, uh, a picture of deity, a symbol of deity. So Christ was not only royalty, but he was deity. He was divine. What's myrrh? Myrrh is an aloe that's used at burial. It's, a, it's an embalming aloe. Myrrh would be what, when Jesus was crucified and wrapped, his wrappings would be covered in the aloe of myrrh. Once again, just a picture of the mission that he came to fulfill. To live and to die for the sins of man. All of this, right, in the gifts that they present. The other thing I think that is really cool about them presenting these gifts... Now, remember that Mary and Joseph, they left their home in Nazareth to come to Bethlehem for this tax, for the census. That was uh, almost 100 miles. Travel from Columbus to Cincinnati, essentially. They left all they had to come and fulfill their role in this census. It was, uh, and they, were, they had to do this. And yet here they are, no home, no job, nothing like that in a town that they didn't know. And as we're going to see next week, uh, they're, they're going to have to hightail it out of town and head to Egypt for a while. They needed resource. They needed money. And through these gifts, God provides for their needs. So I'm sure Joseph used some of the gold, <laughs> used some of the frankincense and some of the myrrh to fund the, the life that they were going to have to live for the next few years, running from Herod and the things that he was trying to do to the Christ child. Last thing here, and I'll let you go. The God who directs and protects. Verse 12 says, Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the wise men returned to their country by another route. You see what happens here? Herod didn't see the star. Herod didn't know that Jesus was born just a few miles away. Yet these guys who were, who were um, humble, knelt to the Son of God. As it says in the book of Psalms, all the kings of the earth would come and kneel before him. They knelt before the Son of God. They presented him with gifts. They showed their adoration, their love for the Son of God. And because of that, God gave them his direction and his protection. Because of their humble obedience and, and yielding themselves to the Son, the Heavenly Father gave them direction and protection. Please hear this, and then I'm going to let you go home. I agree with what Brian said last week, that 
if we want to have the best year we've ever had, then we need to live lives that are, are, are based on good, solid, principled decision-making. Doing the right thing based on the right principles. And we'll do that as as much as a part of, the, of what we can control. But I can guarantee you this year, in 2020, something is going to come into your life that you can't control. And it is going to rock your world. It's going to shake you to your core. Now, I'm not trying to be a, a doomsday prophet. That's just the way life is. It happened to you in 2019. It happened to you in 2018. It happened to you probably every year of your life. Something's going to come this year and it is going to shake you. And you're going to need something to hold on to. Better said, you're going to need someone to hold on to. Now like Herod, you can try to hang on to all your stuff. Your position, your power, everything you've created. Herod died just a few months after this passage. And from what we can tell, Herod went straight to hell. All of that stuff that Herod held on to didn't do anything for him. You can be like the religious leaders who are more concerned about religiously looking right than being in an intimate relationship with the Son of God. They didn't even care. They just wanted to hold on to their religious authority, their position, and what everybody else saw. No stability there. Or we can be like the wise men who humbly knelt before Christ, gave all they had to Him, showed their allegiance showed their adoration, showed their humble surrender to Him. And because of that, they lived under the protection and the direction of His Heavenly Father. I don't know about you, but that's where I want to live. That's where I want to be. Because I know something's going to come, and I'm not going to like it, and it's going to rattle my cage. But when it does... I know I've got someone to hold on to. And that someone is Jesus Christ. How about you? Are you there? Are you making those decisions that are based on all the stuff you can do? All the stuff you've done? All the accomplishments that you've accumulated? Or are you ready to hang on to the one who gives true Genuine strength and stability. Forgiveness for our sin. Redemption and new life. The beauty of God's direction and God's protection. I sure hope so. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for the truth that, you, that your word brings to us. And sometimes even your word can bring us to a place of discomfort. Sometimes even your word brings us to a place where we've got to consider our lives. And so, Lord, right now, I pray that we would be people who find our strength and our stability 
in you and in you alone. Forgive us when we run off to other things and forgive us when we get consumed with with all the stuff that just everyone else sees. Help us, Father, to be driven deep, deep into a relationship with you that gives us your hand of, of protection, gives us your hand of direction, gives us your hand of peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Hey, as we close up our service, there are three responses on the back of those response cards. And, and again, it's our privilege to pray for you as, you as you check these off. One says, pray that I can find a deeper sense of peace and that it would, would affect everyone I live with. That I would be a person of peace and as a person of peace, it would influence the people around me. Number two, pray that I would be more drawn to a spiritual life based on intimacy with Jesus, not just what everyone around me sees. Something that, that is, is, is calling you to intimacy, depth with Christ, not just a bunch of religious practices. And number three, I need to feel God's direction and God's protection. Sometimes I feel like I'm spinning out here all alone. God doesn't want us to be in that place where we're spinning alone. He wants us to know his strength and his protection, his peace. We pray to that end. Why don't you stand to your feet? Why don't you sing this bridge with us? We just said there has never been, there will never be.